He did. Thanks, Alan. Well, good morning. My name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, we are a brand new church. We started our first service was August 28th of last year, so uh, we're just getting started. And uh, really glad uh, to see all of you. And we just finished up a sermon series called "Becoming Human." That finished up last Sunday, and that was Matthew chapter 5. Now we're starting a new sermon series called The Secret Life of Jesus, which is Matthew 6. So uh, we're still in the Sermon on the Mount, but uh, there's, a, there's a shift that uh, Jesus makes uh, in this uh, sermon. And I want you to look along with me, so I don't put the focal passage up, uh, but the other passages I will, I'll put on the screen. So you hunt Matthew's one of the Gospels in the New Testament, first, first book in the New Testament. Find Matthew 6 in there, because um, that's where we're going to go here in a minute. Um, the, the, the shift in Matthew 6 from Jesus' earlier teaching in Matthew 5 is uh, he, he starts talking about spiritual practices, uh, which are sometimes called uh, spiritual disciplines. And he is very similar to Matthew 5, critiquing the religious leaders of his day, and then he's giving the, here's how you should do it. So here, here's how you should not do it, and then here's how you should do it. And we'll see that same pattern in uh, this Matthew 6. And I think Jesus waits to talk about the spiritual practices until this point in the sermon, um, because I think if he would have started there, the religious people would have been saying, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I've got that down, right? Like, There's no one who loves religious practices like religious people. I mean, this is their game, right? This is their jam. They love religious practices, and this is how they justify themselves. And this is they convince themselves that they are righteous before God because they do religious practices. So I think this is why in Matthew 5, Jesus starts calling them out on things like dehumanizing anger and objectifying lust and telling them they should keep their oaths and love their enemy, right? Like, they haven't even thought about that stuff very much. They're like, I pray, I fast, I give to the poor, I show up at temple, like, I'm good. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not. You're not not fully human, right? And so I think he waits to talk about religious practices. And And I think partly he also wants us to know that they're still important. He doesn't dismiss them out of hand. He wants us to know they're important, but he, he also doesn't want us to focus on that uh, first and foremost. So he's, he's not dismissing them, but he is telling us how we should use them. Um, he talks about giving and fasting and praying in part because those are the three major practices of first century Judaism, right? So this is why he wants to talk about these three things, which we'll start with giving uh, today. And... He wants us to see these as a means to an end, right? The practice of giving, the practice of fasting, the practice of praying, that they are not an end in and of themselves. We don't just do them because we we, we see value in them. We do them because we see value in what they give us access to, and what they give us access to is God. He is the ultimate end. This is why we give. This is why we fast. This is why we pray. Much like physical exercises, right? Now, some of you are, are a little weird, and you do physical exercises because you really love physical exercises. 
But most of you see those physical exercises as a means to an end. Right? You want to be fit. You want to feel better. You want to have better, more energy. That would be me. I don't do physical exercise because I really love it. I do it because I want to feel better. I want to have energy. I want to, I want to be uh, more fit. Right? And so spiritual practices is very similar. We don't do spiritual practices just to do spiritual practices. We do it because, again, what we are going to experience as a result of those practices. And part of the result is that we can actually become the kind of human that's described in chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, USC philosophy professor and, uh, and author, Dallas Willard, uh, he writes this, and he's, he's, he's no longer with us, but he's got some great books on spiritual disciplines. He says this, when through spiritual disciplines I become able to bless those who curse me, pray without ceasing, to be at peace when not given credit for good deeds I've done, or to master the evil that comes my way. It is because my disciplinary activities have inwardly poised me for more and more interactions with the powers of the living God and His kingdom. Such is the potential we tap into when we use the disciplines. So again, we, we, we experience God through things like giving and praying and fasting and many, many others. And uh, last week I said, you know, when we got done with, with chapter uh, 5 and we were, we're hearing Jesus saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And, and you, you thought, wow, I thought that I was climbing 3,000 foot El Capitan in Yosemite Park. But what I find out is I'm climbing a 30,000 Mount Everest, right? And as we look at that peak, when we get to chapter 6, it's like Jesus comes beside us and says, oh, by the way, I'm going to climb with you and here's some rope and some harnesses, right? And the rope and the harnesses are these spiritual disciplines, these spiritual practices. So if we're going to become the kind of human that we talked about in chapter 5, we're going to have to embrace spiritual practices of chapter 6. Um, this is exciting. It's exciting that God in His mercy has given us spiritual practices in order to become more and more like him. Again, Willard says this, through them, talking about spiritual practices, we become capable of doing with God all the wonderful things commanded in the Bible, which we know are impossible in our own strength and wisdom. So, you know, we had a tendency to look at Matthew 5 and like, hey, stop being angry, stop being lustful, love your enemies, keep your oaths and say, okay, I'm going to try harder this week to be this. And we find out in Matthew 6, Jesus is saying, no, you're going to have to access help from God through these practices in order to become the kind of person described in Matthew chapter 5. So if you're new this morning, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons in Matthew chapter 5. And you can find those SoundCloud and wherever you listen to your podcast. You can look up Rich Top Church. We're like the only Rich Top Church in America. It's pretty awesome. Um, so it's pretty easy to find us, uh, but you can hear the, the chapter 5 sermons that will help understand chapter 6. So let's look at chapter 6. So hopefully you found Matthew uh, chapter 6. What, what page is it on? 761. 761? Okay. So that's where we are. Matthew 6 verse 1. So beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So 
those of you that have been with us, this is a similar pattern to Matthew 5, where he's, he says, you know, you've heard it said, but I say. And so this is something similar where he's saying, don't do it this way, but do it this way, right? And what is he, what's he saying here? He's saying how people approach spiritual practices, practices wrongly and what the results are when we approach them wrongly. Uh, the approach that he is calling out is doing spiritual practices to impress others. And he says, the result is, you get nothing. You get nothing. You get no reward. Now, we who live in Austin, Texas, look at that, and we may be a little confused because we're like, doing spiritual practices to impress people? Like, in Austin? People aren't really impressed that I'm doing Christian spiritual practices. Um, But in a religious society... This is a real temptation. And some of you have grown up in a religious kind of culture, and you know what this is talking about, right? If your mom is religious, and your dad is religious, and your extended family is religious, and your friends are religious, and your school is religious, and your government is religious, everything is religious. And so it's very tempting to appear outwardly that you too are religious, even though inwardly you are not, because everything around you is religious. And this is the kind of culture that Jesus is speaking to when he says uh, what he says there in verse uh, 1. And so these kinds of cultures tend to breed religious hypocrisy. And Jesus uses this word hypocrite a lot. And it was a a word in first century, especially Greco-Roman culture, that just meant actor. It didn't have the negative connotations like we have when we say, you're a hypocrite. It, it's actually just an actor, right? And what is an actor? An actor is playing a part, right? Like Tom Cruise, he's not really a, a jet, uh, you know, he doesn't drive jets. I don't know if you knew that. He's just playing a part, right? And so that's, that's the image. Well, then Jesus takes that word and he says, that's what you are doing, religious people, who are pretending to be something on the outside that you're not on the inside. You're an actor. You're a hypocrite. And so we're, we're tempted in that kind of religious setting to participate in these practices. Or uh, we know that if we don't, our points socially will go down. Our stock price will start going down. Uh, if we question those practices, stock price socially going down. Um, and so what's interesting is you look at any kind of society, every society is religious about something. So there really isn't a society that's not religious. There's certain things about certain societies that are are, are tempting us to pretend we're something on the outside that we're really not on the inside. Let me think about our society. Um, The concept of virtue signaling on social media. This would be an example um, that you must post certain things about certain causes or issues or events to stay in the good graces of your friends, whoever those friends happen to be, whatever tribe they happen to be. You want to post to let them know that you're in that tribe. And it's likely that if it was just up to you, you wouldn't have posted. But you know if you don't, you won't stay in the good graces, right? So um, you think, I'll post. What could hurt? It couldn't hurt anything, right? Um, And this is a glimpse of how 
sort of religious hypocrisy happens. It's not some evil religious leader trying to pull something off to get, get power. You're just trying to stay, get your, keep your stock price up, right, in the people, with the people that are in your uh, circle, in your society. Um, but then it starts to metastasize, and it becomes something that's really evil. Religious hypocrisy is evil, and it's very destructive, just like any other kind of hypocrisy. So Jesus gives us this warning, don't participate in religious practices to impress others. It's very, very, very clear. It's very forthright in the way that he says it. Now, why not, Jesus? What's the big deal, right? Is it God's going to get me or bad things going to happen? Or I'm going to be just crushed by guilt and shame? I mean, what is it? Why shouldn't I do this? And I think the reason that he gives is a little surprising because he says, for then you will, not, you, you will have re- no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That's, a, that's an interesting motivation to say you shouldn't do this because then you won't get a reward from your Father in heaven. Now, at first glance, you think, that must be like some sort of works-based relationship with God the Father. Like if I'm a good little boy, a good little girl, I say my prayers in secret, and I eat my vegetables, then God will really, really love me. But as we get further and further in text, we're going to find that's not what he's talking about. What he's doing is inviting us in to a secret life with the Father. He's inviting us in to a secret life with God the Father, and it's really good. That's why he calls it a reward. This is something to be desired, to long for, a secret life with God, the Father. Jesus speaks of this so many places in the gospel. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you, you, you can see this. But here's, here's one that I think is really profound. Matthew 11, verse 27, here on the screen behind me. And let's keep this up as I'm, as I'm talking about this, Caleb. Uh, he says, all things have been handed over to me, this is Jesus speaking, by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. There's a, there's a lot in that verse. So one thing, he, he's talking about an intimacy that he shares with the Father. He calls the, the Father, my Father. That's really intimate, right? I introduced my wife. I said, this is my wife, right? This is my son. This is, uh, you know, in a few months, I'll be able to say, this is my grandson. So, that, hey, that's, that's going to happen. Pretty excited about that. Had to work that in the sermon. Um, <laughs> probably every sermon, you know, going forward for the next two years. Um, but there's, there's an intimacy there, right? And then he says, uh, to, to, to further sort of bolster that, he says, no one knows the son, except the Father. And by this time in Jesus' ministry, like, people know him. His disciples know him. His mom and dad know him. I mean, what are you talking about? He's saying, no, no one knows me like God the Father, right? This is is like me saying, you know, maybe an acquaintance that I've made today, and they know me, right? But they don't know me like my wife knows me. He knows me really, really well. And this is what Jesus is saying about the Father. Like, like he knows me in a really, really uh, intimate way. And then he says, no one knows the Father except the Son. Same kind of 
communication, right? We know that God the Holy Spirit knows the Father. I mean, come on, Jesus, what are you talking about? But again, he's just accentuating this intimate relationship that he has with the Father and that the Father has with him. But then the last phrase, it's astounding. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What an amazing invitation. He's not just saying that he has a, a secret life with God. He's saying to us, you can have a secret life with God as well. And that through the Son, by the power of the Spirit, you can know God the Father. Not just be an acquaintance, but actually deeply know God the Father. Have a fellowship with God the Father. This is the secret life that we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. This invitation that Jesus is extending. And this uh, invitation is an invitation to a new identity, right? To become a child of God the Father. And what spiritual practices are is the living into that identity, right? So you have the identity, and now we want to grow in that identity. We want to live into that identity. So his first spiritual practice, we would never choose this one. I would probably never choose this one, right? It's giving. It's financial giving, <laughs> right? And this is a big deal in, the, in first century Judaism, right? It was all, what they call almsgiving, which is giving to the poor, right? Giving to, to those who are destitute. And so that was a big deal, and it, and it was a way to show how religious you were, that you were generously giving to the destitute. So Jesus says this about giving, verse 2 of Matthew 6. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, contextually, I don't, I don't think they were really carrying trumpets, you know, and giving an offering. And as far as we can tell, we can't find any evidence that that was actually happening. So, so this is probably hyperbole on Jesus' part, which he uses a lot, right? This is one of his uh, ways of, of teaching, is using hyperbole. Um, but we even have the phrase of, they're tooting their own horn, right? That's where this comes from. And so you're doing something good, but you want everyone to know about it. And so you just kind of slip in little comments that make sure that everyone knows that you're giving uh, to the needy. My favorite, you know, this is corporations that are being so generous, right? And they're, but they're posting it everywhere in the store. We're giving this much money to... It's, just, it's like, okay, okay, I know you're so generous. Uh, it doesn't feel all that authentic, right? And so this is what was happening in the religious culture of that day. Right? People giving, but they're giving so that other people can see them and they can impress others. This is in line with the earlier statement, right? Practicing righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. But here, he says they have received their reward. So there is some kind of reward. It's not from the Father, but it is a reward. And what is the reward? The reward is people are impressed. Like, there is a, a reward, and by Jesus saying, 
you don't get a reward and that you can get a reward, he's basically saying impressing others is worthless. It's just worthless. It will happen, but it's worthless. It ought not to be something that you're trying to accomplish, impressing others with your spiritual practices. It's totally worthless. He's, he's also saying you, you can't get a two-for-one. Like if you're approaching spiritual practices to impress others, you aren't also going to get a reward from your father. The heart posture of that kind of, a, of an approach is not going to result in an experience with the living God. Uh, spiritual practices don't work like magic, right? Think about how, how magic works. You are manipulating a power, kind of this nebulous power, using casting spells, doing rituals, you know, some, some kind of way to manipulate the power. You have no heart loyalty to the power. The power isn't personal, right? Use the force, Luke. Like, like this is impersonal. And you are figuring out how to manipulate it to benefit yourself. Spiritual practices are not like that. Not Christian spiritual practices. They are for the purpose of relating with God. They, they are a doorway in to a, a secret life with God. And so they're, they're, they're not to impress people, and uh, they're not some sort of magical trick to get God to do what we want. They are for the purpose of relationship. And God doesn't want to be related with in a transactional way. He wants us to relate with Him for Him, who He is. Right? This, is this is what He desires, and this is what He's revealing through spiritual practices. He's revealing Himself for the purpose of relationship. So in light of that, how do we do this giving thing, Jesus? Well, verse 3, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So he says, when you give, and later he's going to say, when you fast and when you pray. So he's not dismissing spiritual practices. So he is assuming that his followers are going to be doing these kinds of things. Um, so he, he wants to equip his followers to practice them in a proper way. That are actually going to result in a secret life with God the Father. So he says, give secretly. Give secretly. So, so secretly. Here your right hand is, is writing you know, the check or giving the cash or clicking the online giving. And the left hand doesn't even know what's going on, right? And then later in the day, the left hand is like, what's going on? What? There's $200 missing in the account. I, I don't understand, right? Now, this is hyperbole, obviously. Your right hand and your left hand, they're attached to your body and your brain, and they, they know what's going on, right? Um, but it's a way of saying, of, of emphasizing secrecy, secrecy in giving. And I think there's a couple of reasons for doing this. So one, it's a practical remedy for those, which is all of us, who are tempted to do spiritual practices to impress others. It's a remedy. It's a remedy for that. Um, 
If you're doing spiritual practices in secret, you will discover very quickly whether or not you were doing them to impress others. <laughs> because you'll just stop doing them. You'll just stop it. And so if you're, if you're doing it in secret, and you continue to do that in secret, it's a good, good sense of, okay, I'm, I'm actually doing this uh, to have a relationship with God. Doing these things in secret, any kind of spiritual practice, doesn't have to just be giving, it starves off, right, whatever we're being fed in terms of being impressed by others. And uh, Dallas Willard, again, I'm going to quote from him a lot because I've learned a lot from, from him on these things. He says, few things are more important in stabilizing our walk of faith than this discipline. In the practice of secrecy, we experience a continuing relationship with God independent of the opinions of others. And so he's saying this is a stabilizing way of growing in, in maturity as a Christian, is doing things in secret. Now, does it mean that you have to do everything in secret? All your giving has to be in secret. I don't think so. Actually, I mean, Matthew 5, he says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You're like, which is it, Jesus? Do it in front of people so they know, or I don't do it, I do it in secret. And more than anything, and I got this from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote The Cost of Discipleship. I, was just, I just opened it up this morning, and I was looking at it, and I was like, oh, man, thank you, Dietrich. This is pretty good. Um, he said, it's more about self-forgetfulness in regard to your, to your practices. Like, the main thing is you're just following Jesus. And there's sometimes when it's appropriate to tell someone else about your practices. How else are they going to learn? Right? I mean, if you're making disciples, you're going to end up talking about giving and praying. And I, there's no way to not, and, you, and, and people need to know. Right? I remember my college pastor uh, telling me that he and his family gave a tithe of everything that they made financially, like 10% of what they were um, making uh, to the church as an offering. And I was a college student, and I was like, I knew they were struggling, and yet they were doing this by faith. And so when I heard that, I was like, I'm going to do that too. And so my, the first paycheck I got after that as a college student, I tithed it, gave it 10%, never looked back, right? I would have never known that if my college pastor hadn't talked to me about it. So again, it's not like, oh, I must be secret, but being in secret is helpful, right? This, this can really help us mature to do at least some of our spiritual life in secret. Partly because it's also this invitation by Jesus to a secret life with God. Hear his invitation. Like he is saying, you, you can have a secret life with God. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have also a corporate life with God, with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Of course you should. But he's also saying, there's a secret life. Only you and God share. Um, I don't know if, uh, you know, he says this, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. That's exciting that, that this life we're living in, in honor of Jesus is being seen by God. He sees it. He sees everything. Um, I don't know. Do you guys share your location on, on Find My Friends? No? I mean, I do with my, my family and my mom. She, she tracks me, 
but really no one else. So if you, if you ever ask me to, to share my location, I'm going to say no. And it's nothing personal as far as you know. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm not going to do that. But, but God knows my location. He knows a lot more than my location. Right? Uh, I was thinking of Psalm 139, verse 1. He says, Oh, Lord, you've searched me and know me. This is David writing. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. God sees all. He sees our ways, our words, our thoughts. He sees our giving. He sees our giving and all our other spiritual practices in that secret place that only we share with Him. And this, this unique relationship that we uh, have with God, it, it's oftentimes talked about like marriage, right? Throughout the Bible, this is, this is a prominent metaphor of God's relationship with His people, is this marriage idea. Um, and so married people have a secret place, right? The door is locked. No one else can come in. There's a vulnerability and intimacy and intensity, a joy in that secret place of a marriage. And that is shared with no one else. And our secret place with God, it's not sexual, but it's spiritual and it's relational. And the door is locked and no one can come in. There's a vulnerability, an intimacy, an intensity, a joy that is shared there, and no one else is in that secret place. Now, again, does it mean that it's, not, it's definitely important to be a part of a spiritual community? And just the same way, a marriage does open up to children and friends and fellowship with other Christians and neighbors, and it's a blessing to a whole bunch of other people, but at its center is a secret place no one else knows about. And, and so Jesus is welcoming us into this secret place with God. So my question to you this morning is, do you have a secret place? Do you have a secret life with God the Father? If the answer is no, there's a couple of reasons why that might be. One reason is you might not yet be a Christian. That's one reason. Right? The only way to access this relationship with God the Father is through faith in God the Son and what He did for you on the cross. So I think some of us, we just think of God just kind of like the force be with us, right? Like, like He is everywhere all the time. It is true. But this kind of personal relationship that we're talking about here, you have to access it through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 14, uh, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We say here that we are a Christ-centered church. That doesn't mean we don't believe in God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. It just means that we know you're never going to have access to God the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit unless you come through the Son, unless you come through faith in Christ Jesus. So if you've never done that before, I want to encourage you to do it this morning. 
to move toward Christ in faith, admit your sin, and receive the forgiveness that he's given you on the cross. And that will be a gateway into a relationship with God, a gateway into the secret life that you can have with your creator. Now, the second reason you might not have a secret life is that you haven't been doing the spiritual practices. These are the means that God has given us to relate with God. And if we don't use the means, then we don't experience the end, right? which is God himself. Think about it this way. If, uh, when I married Melanie, August 1st, 1992, and we went to the reception, and then I got in a car, and I just like drove to Arizona and just set up shop by myself, and we never lived in the same place and never had another conversation for the last 30 years. Would we be married? Well, as long as she didn't divorce me, yes. Officially, we would be legally married. But would we be experiencing anything that is even close to the vision of what a good, healthy, powerful, life-giving marriage is? No. I need to live in the same house with her. I need to have conversations with her every day for the last 30 years. That's, that's the means of growing in that relationship. And it's, it's true of our spiritual relationship, right? You may have moved toward God in faith, in what Christ has done for you, and, and started that relationship. But if not participating in these practices, then you're not really leaning in, living into the identity that you were given by grace, through faith. Now, there are many spiritual practices. And, you know, Jesus mentions these three in this chapter, and they're there partly because of the cultural context, because these are the three biggies that were in religious life of, the, of his day. But there are many, many more. And some of those, um, well, I'm going to give you a, a list here in a minute, but uh, Dallas Willard has uh, this, this list, that two lists, actually, that he uses in a book called the Spirit of the Disciplines, which is a really helpful book, something that you may want to pick up if you're wanting to explore more what these are. But uh, the two, two um, uh, lists are uh, uh, the disciplines of uh, detachment, what does he call them? Abstinence, sorry, and engagement. Abstinence and engagement. So abstinence would be more like detaching yourself from things, and engagement would be attaching yourself to things, right, to God himself. Um, he likens it to trying to get over carbon monoxide poisoning. I thought this was really brilliant. So carbon monoxide poisoning, what happens is carbon monoxide latches on to the receptors of your blood, red blood cells that are for oxygen, and you can't get any oxygen, and so you basically suffocate, right? See, my sailor, my biology degree, coming in handy here. Um, so what has to happen is those... Um, Carbon monoxide molecules have to be detached from those receptors, and then it has to be replaced with oxygen. So spiritual disciplines are a little bit like this, where we had to detach from some things so that we can attach to God. So here's some of the, um, the, the lists that he has for those detaching ones, those abstinence ones. So solitude, being by yourself, detaching from stuff, right? Detaching from people and your phone and all that kind of stuff. Then silence. Not just being alone, but actually being in silence. Uh, fasting, so detaching from food. Frugality, detaching from uh, spending money. Uh, chastity, de detaching from uh, practicing uh, sex, which could be 
I'm single and I'm not having sex because I'm single. Or it could be a married couple saying, you know what, for a couple of days, we're, we're going to have this time of prayer and we're going to have some, some chastity. Uh, secrecy. So we just talked about secrecy, right? Uh, sacrifice. And then uh, disciplines of engagement. So study, especially studying your Bible. Worship, celebration, service, prayer, fellowship with other Christians, confession, submission. Um, and so these are the kinds of things. And it's not a list of like, okay, I've got to tick off all these. I've got to make sure I do these all next week. But I just want to expose you to some of the things that are out there in terms of both in the scriptures, but also throughout um, church history that different um, brothers and sisters in Christ have, have used that have been helpful to them in order to carve out that secret place with God the Father. But what of the practice of giving, right? This is what Jesus is talking about here in the text. Well, when you start to think about this, this is a little more complicated than you just ought to give secretly, right? Uh, one, you got to work to acquire some wealth to give away. So that's part of it. Then you've got to manage the wealth in a way that you actually have something left over to give away. So it's a little more complicated than just, yeah, you should just give stuff away. Like, you got to work to make some, to acquire wealth, and then you've got to, uh, to, to manage it. Um, one of the ways to think about it is creating margin, this is not original to me, but creating margin in your financial life. So something like this, like, let's say you're living off a of 90% of what you bring in so that you have a margin of 10% to give away. Most Americans don't live this way. Most Americans live this way. They have 99% that they live off of. Maybe 1% they give away. Honestly, a lot of Americans live on 110% of what they're making, which is called debt, right? And so in order to, to be generous, in order to give, you have to work to acquire wealth and then manage the wealth such that we're not living off 100% or 110% of what we make in order to give it away. Uh, John Wesley, who's the founder of the Methodist Church, says, get as much as you can, save as much as you can, give away as much as you can. That's a good kind of synopsis of what I just said, right? Get as much as you can. So work, acquire wealth, nothing wrong with that, right? And then save as much as you can, meaning don't spend it all, right? Like be a good steward of that and, and, and keep it. And then you've got some wealth to actually give away. But on top of that, of acquiring wealth, stewarding the wealth, in order to give to, to, to needs, you actually have to engage people enough to know the needs. So, so now there's a relational component to it. How would you know that someone has a need if you don't hang out with any people, right? And so getting to know people, getting to know their needs, and then, of course, taking the action to meet the needs. So again, I'm asking, is this something that's part of your walk with Christ? Is, is giving financially to meet needs. Uh, this could be a large sum of money. It could be some really simple stuff. It could be giving somebody a ride to the airport at 4 a.m. in the morning and insisting that you cover the gas, right? That's, that's, a, that's a need. I'm not, and I don't need a ride yet to, at 4 a.m., but I will one day, and I'll, I'll be asking you guys. Um, but... Give, giving, right, generously. And again, it doesn't have to be a large sum. It could be, but it also could be uh, 
a, a, a small thing, right? Buying someone's coffee. Just, just being generous. Just, just meeting these needs as you see them come up. And they're oftentimes a combination of meeting a financial need and relationship, right? They're, they're, they're usually coupled together. Um, and this is so, such a powerful thing, right? Like meeting a financial need and doing it in a relational way. I remember uh, in our church that uh, we planted in Massachusetts, we had young congregation, a lot of, a lot of the young moms were having, having babies, and we would do this meal train where they would get a meal from somebody in the church for two weeks every other day that would feed them for two days. So they basically had two weeks of meals, which is awesome, right? It was a meeting a need. And what we found out is that people were showing up with a meal and handing it to the, the family and then like leaving and not really hanging out, right? And so we had to like put in a little email training to each family and go, hey, go ahead and stay. Like, like hold the baby, pray for this family. Like it's not just about meeting the financial needs, it's also about the relationship, right? And so this is, this is always part of uh, the meeting of a financial need. Um, I remember we were, we were, as a church, we were helping uh, a young single mom who had fled her country and had come to the U.S. And, and had come without her husband because he couldn't get the proper papers to get into the U.S. And so she was just on her own. And so our church helped her get set up in an apartment. But she didn't just need money to get set up in an apartment. She needed someone to put the shelves together because she had a little baby. And then she needs someone to take her out to lunch and hear about all the things that she'd been through in her country and to hear the pain that she'd been through, right? And so this meeting of needs, giving to the, the needy. And I, I think this is, this is it's good to hear because I, I think there's, there's something along the lines of what was probably happening in the religious circles of Jesus' day, right? He's like, oh, I'm giving to the needy, right? Look at me, blow my trumpet. And this, that is not Christ-centered Christian giving. It's a, it's a means of ministry to, to people, to humans. And uh, it's, it's coupled with relationship. Now, this uh, generous giving also is coupled with the meeting of finan- uh, or, uh, spiritual needs as well. Right? As, as important as material poverty is and that we need to meet, help meet that need, spiritual poverty is much more serious. Gospel poverty is much more serious. And that, that need, part, part of how we meet that need, is through finances. Right? I mean, you'll, you'll hear uh, from Mac next week. She'll share about a, a trip she's going on to Central Asia. And she needs finances to help her get there and to share the gospel. Right? And so th- this kind of stuff takes money. And... Um, Kind of plan A for God in terms of getting this done is really the church, right? The members of a church giving generously to the church, both to sustain gospel ministry in that church, but also then to send that out to, to, for gospel ministry in other places. And so that as, as members of the church, there are about 20 of you, right at right exactly 20 of you, actually. Um, this was part of our conversation in our membership class, and the few of you that are going to come uh, to the membership class next Saturday. We're, we're going to talk about this, like generous giving. This is part of following Jesus and giving to your local church such that that sustains gospel ministry here, but also it sustains gospel ministry other places. 
Um, Paul writes this to the church at Corinth, bragging on some other churches in a region called Macedonia and their giving. So 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1 says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So you hear the kind of essence of what we've been talking about today in that passage, that they're, they're being crazy generous and, and they're doing that even beyond their means, right? I mean, I watched my college pastor do this. I'm like, you guys are giving 10% away? I mean, you, that doesn't make sense on paper. He's like, yeah, I know. But God takes care of us as we give in this crazy generous way. But not only that, giving themselves first to the Lord and then to the meet, meet the needs of others. It's, it's about the secret place, this giving. It's about the secret place with God, the secret life with God. And so uh, this is so interesting to me because we usually think, well, prayer and read your Bible and these kind of, like, and they are, they're important for cultivating that secret life with God, but giving is, is a very, very powerful way of cultivating that secret life. Because there's something very concrete. When you're giving generously, even beyond your means, you are trusting in a really, really concrete way that God is going to be your provider. Right? And there's just a, a sweetness to that as you trust Him, and He shows up again and again and again and again and again. Right? Not, it's not easy. It's not easy. And it's still not easy for me either. Right? But seeing him show up in so many ways to provide for us. Um, Paul, writing to the Philippians, he says this, and, and Philippians is kind of a thank you note for, for financial support for ministry. Um, and he says this in Philippians 4, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's thanking them for their generosity, and he's talking more about God, right? He's talking about God uh, receiving their, their, their giving as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice unto him. Uh, and then he's saying, oh, but, and that came from God. Like, he's the provider of everything that you need, including what you are giving away. And, and such an invitation, again, to a secret life with God. And that giving, as well as other spiritual practices, are a means to cultivate uh, that secret life. When we uh, planted uh, a church in Massachusetts, uh, one of the things I did wrong was I didn't encourage them to give generously. And partly because I thought, oh, that's going to offend them, and I don't want to run them off, and, you know, preachers talk too much about money. And, and then about six years in, I realized that was a mistake. That was sort of a like, pastoral malpractice on my part. And, and, and partly it was because I wasn't giving them the opportunity of 
giving in a secret place like that, to cultivate that trust in God with their finances that I was doing and I was seeing God meet me in that, meet our family in that, but they weren't getting that opportunity to do it. And so then about six years in, I'm like, okay, actually, it, this matters. Like this whole generous giving thing, it needs to happen and here's why. And, and so it was kind of a retraining, which was painful on some, some days. Um, and so you may be thinking, okay, well, how can I know that I could trust God like that? Uh, I think most of us are like, man, I've got to scratch and save and put everything in a 401k, and like, I, I, I'm just not going to make it if, if God doesn't, uh, you know, if, if He doesn't come through. Like, I don't know if I can trust Him. And this, this verse here in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul speaks of really the core of generous giving. And he says this, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. There's the core of gospel giving, is that Christ gave generously to us in laying down his life for us. How much more generous could you be? And when we experience that, 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 that work of the Son having been sent by this Father who wants to have this secret life with us, and we, we, we see that, it makes us want to trust Him. Because if He's been that generous at the cross, how much more generous will He be in taking care of lesser needs? We're reminded of that every time we come to this table, right? On the night on which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Talk about generosity, right? His body broken and given for us. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He was creating a new covenant community out of his generosity that would then go and reflect that to the world, that we too would be generous in his name because he had been generous to us. And so as we take this, I want us to be reminded he is so generous abundantly so, at the cross. And so this empowers us, it encourages us, it motivates us to then give generously, but not just for giving sake, to further cultivate that secret life with God that we have because of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you. You are the kind of God who wants to have a relationship with us. And that you have paid dearly for that. You have paid the ultimate price in order to open the door for us to step in through faith and to be in relationship with you and then to live into that relationship through these beautiful spiritual practices that you've given us. And so I pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us uh, to, to really live into that relationship through giving, and later we'll talk about fasting and prayer and, and many others, God, that uh, you've given us to relate to you and to grow in that relationship. 
So we pray that you would bless this bread and bless the cup in our time together uh, as we both experience a secret life with you, but also a covenant life with one another that was bought and paid for us at your cross. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.